We are launching today, as Kyle has mentioned, a 10-week series on the promises, the promises of God, what we've entitled the God of Promises, because the promises start with God, right? They flow from God. We're using the symbol of the rainbow because long before the rainbow was a symbol for anything else, it was a biblical symbol of God's promise. His promise to Noah following the worldwide flood. A promise, uh, the rainbow was a symbol of God's covenant, uh, God's care, God's commitment to the human race in the aftermath of that terrible flood, which was a flood of judgment. Now today, as we begin this series, I'm going to focus on what I believe is the central, the main, the primary promises, promise of all the promises of God, and that is the promise of pardon, the promise of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, which interestingly enough is unique to Christianity among all the religions of the world. There's only forgiveness in the religions of the world in Jesus. Now, we choose sermon series here at Wheaton Bible Church as a team. And a couple of months ago, the preaching team and some of our uh, worship staff were in my office and we were discussing as we meet regularly, you know, what should we be doing this summer? You know, what is God leading us? Sometimes we're thinking Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, sometimes we're thinking biblical issues. Sometimes we're asking what is culture presenting that we need to respond to biblically. So we're always looking at a variety of things and different people are giving input. And all of a sudden, Pastor Lon spoke up. And he said, well, I just want to say as we think about this summer series, that one of the primary things that God is doing in my life in my battle with cancer, one of the primary sources of confidence and joy and peace, and we've all seen that modeled in Lon's life as he goes through this battle with cancer, he said uh, one of the primary things, the primary anchor, that kind of the mainstay for me are the promises of God, is the promises of God. And so here we are today. So today I want to dedicate this series to Lon because this isn't a series about accumulated knowledge. This is a series about how you can overcome the greatest obstacles in your life. How you can satisfy the deepest longings in your heart. The promises of God. And another reason I'm dedicating this to Lon is because if you don't like it, then it's Lon's fault. <laughs> and I'm off the hook. Now we're going to jump in way back in the Old Testament, about 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene in human history, to the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. I just love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the most quoted prophetic book in the New Testament. Isaiah, interestingly enough, is often called the fifth gospel. Why? Because just like the other four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus appears almost in every page in Isaiah in terms of promise, prophecy, and pictures. 
And this morning, we're going to look at seven verses in chapter 55. Because I happen to believe it contains one of the richest statements of God's promise to pardon the guilty. Anywhere in Isaiah, for that matter, anywhere in the Bible. It's right up there with all the great passages in the Bible. So we're going to read together. I want to ask you to stand with me as I read the first seven verses. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him. Now let me just press pause and say, as we move into verses four and five, there's a scholarly debate about who is this referring to. Some argue David, others argue Jesus. I I believe Jesus is uh, the subject here. See, I have made him, that is Jesus a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you, this is Jesus, you will summon nations you know not. Nations that were not a part of God's covenant to Israel. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. You may be seated. Now there is a lot going on in these seven verses, but I want to focus on the end. I want to focus, do this a little differently today, on just the two words, the last two words in verse 7. Freely pardon. Freely means abundantly. In the Hebrew, it's literally to multiply pardon. Pardon is a more familiar word for us. It's a synonym with forgiveness. The concept is one of release. To forgive someone is to release them from their debt, to release them from their failure. Now these two words, freely or abundantly pardon, are a promise prophecy of the depth, the extent, and the unlimited nature of the forgiveness that God offers in Christ. And it's written, it's announced, 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. Now there are certain messages that those of us that preach get really excited about and I want you to know this is one of them because I am a man who has been completely and totally forgiven. And it has completely and totally changed my life. And I want that, I so desperately want that for each and every one of you. 
So today I want to take these two words, abundantly pardon, and look at four different aspects of the two words, the concept. Asking, well, what does this mean? What is Isaiah teaching us? Uh, How do we um, tease this out? So let me begin at the beginning and say the first thing I see in our passage is to understand the abundant pardon. We need to understand that according to Isaiah, it's rooted in God's abundant mercy. So right in the middle of verse 7, we have this word mercy. And the sentence is, he will, God will have mercy. Not he might. Not he is theoretically able to, but it's a promise. He will. He will have mercy. Now, mercy is an attribute of God. Pardon is the child of mercy. It's the attribute in action. God pardons because he's merciful. Now, all the attributes of God are um, perfectly balanced. So on the one hand, God is infinitely holy. On the other hand, God is infinitely good. On the one hand, God is infinitely powerful. On the other hand, he is infinitely tender. But there would be no mercy apart from human sin. Now bear with me for a moment, especially for those of you that may be just visiting with us today. The Bible tells us that in addition to creating everything we see, God also created angels. And the chief angel, Satan. And the Bible also tells us Satan and some angels that accompanied him rebelled against God in heaven and were cast out of heaven. Now, the moment that happened, God could have pardoned them, but he didn't. He chose not to forgive them. But human beings who are made lower than the angels, the book of Hebrews tells us, God determined before the foundation of the world that after the fall of the human race and Adam, when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God determined that mercy would flow from the fountains of heaven. And anyone who believes, believes in the Old Testament promise, believes as now has been revealed in, uh, in the Gospels, anyone who believes in Jesus might find forgiveness, might find Pardon, and Isaiah is saying it's because of God's mercy. God doesn't have to pardon. He didn't pardon Satan and the fallen angels, but he abundantly pardons. Why? Because he's abundantly merciful. Look at these beautiful words that express the concept a little differently from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. Now notice, abounding. That's the concept of freely, abundant in love and compassion, in mercy. 
He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Therefore, he does not repay us according to our iniquities. What does he do instead? Well, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. Another word for sin, from us. Now leave this up for a minute. You tend to think God is out to get you or that God is disappointed with you or that you don't have enough of what God is looking for or God will spoil your fun. And I want to say to you, you don't know the God I know because the God I know is abundant in life-giving, life-changing mercy. He's abundant in it. You, you could sooner drain all the oceans of every drop of water than you could diminish the mercy of God. And you say, man, there is no way. You have no idea, Rob, what I'm going through. You have no idea how difficult, complex, how, how scared I am, how difficult my, my life is. I'm not experiencing God's mercy in the least. And I want to say to you, one of the beautiful things about living in Illinois is that we have clou cloudy day after cloudy day, right? And we, never, we go months and never see the sun. Overstatement. Preachers are prone to it. But one thing we know is because of the clouds, that does not, that does not mean the sun has ceased to exist. And in the same way, your difficulty, your disappointment in life doesn't mean God's laid aside his mercy or God's mercy doesn't exist. What it means instead is God is refining you. He's refining you because he is abundant in mercy. Now let me go on. Make a, a, a second point. God's pardon is abundant, freely, uh, abundantly pardoned. It's abundant because our sin, human sin, is abundant. Now, I know it's not cool today to talk about sin. And one of the things uh, people outside the church think is that we're hopelessly naive as Christians because we affirm this three-letter word, sin. But what I want you to see, God's pardon is rooted in God's mercy, but it's necessitated, it is demanded because of the brokenness, the spiritual dysfunction, the sin in our lives. Now the world tells us, hey, no way. But what I find interesting is when we come to this remarkable seven verses that sin is assumed throughout these verses, and then it's made explicit in two words in verse 7, wicked and unrighteous. Now hang with me. Who can imagine the millions and millions of men, women, and children who throughout history, from every corner of the world, either looked ahead to the promise of God or looked back to the accomplished, completed work of Jesus Christ. 
and who set their hearts on the hope of the gospel and who are now, right now, experiencing unimaginable joy in heaven. You know the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, says no one can count that number. No one can count the number. And today, I mean right now, in places like China, Asia, different places in Asia, Africa, uh, Iran, a couple of weeks ago I told you about an entire tribe that came to Christ after, almost an entire tribe that came to Christ after Rhonda and I were there about six months earlier. What is going on in places like that, places that are not blinded by the narcissistic Western materialism that is like a chain around our legs here in the West, man, those churches are exploding. People are, 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 are coming to Christ. But it's different here in the United States right now. Because we don't see what we don't see. So let's talk about sin. I mean, think about what God forgives. It's just not an act you did. It's all your sinful deeds. But it's not your, just your deeds, man. It's your thoughts. It's your motives. It's your, your words. And over a course of a lifetime, before a holy God, that's thousands and thousands and thousands. It's your selfishness. It's your pride. It's your indifference to injustice. Anger, greed, and, and lust. And one of the great paradoxes of the human experience is it's so very easy for us to see sin in other people, so hard to see it in ourselves. I mean, you ask a little boy why he hit his sister, and he's not going to say to you because of the sinfulness in my heart. He's going to say to you because she made me do it. You ask a mother or a father, why are you always so angry? Why do you yell so much? And they're not going to say to you because of the selfishness and the impatience that has got a grip on my heart. They're going to say, oh, I'm just so stressed and it's work. Or you ask a student, a young adult, a, a single, why are you so discontent? Why are you so moody? And they're not going to say, well, you know, my heart is full of jealousy. They're going to say, oh, it's just a bunch of stuff and life is hard right now. That, in every case, is street-level heresy. It's denial. It's a denial of the human problem. The human problem isn't what happens outside us. It's what goes on inside us. The human problem is we have fallen, broken, sinful hearts. And nowhere do I think uh, this is better demonstrated than in the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus scorches, I mean scorches, the phony, religious, hypocritical Pharisees who, like many of us in the West today, deny the reality of personal sin. That's not new to us. I mean, the Pharisees had that going. Oh, it's other people that sin. We don't. So Jesus comes along. There's some conflict going on. And Jesus wants to make his point clear. Look at what he says. 
Speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he says, what comes out of your heart is what defiles you. And then he lists this, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. I read that list and I plead guilty. And then Jesus says, and here Jesus is leveling the playing field with the Pharisees and saying, you're not an exception. He says, all these evils come from inside and to defile a person. In other words, you Pharisees, your hearts are sinful. Your hearts are defiled. Human sin, whether it's political corruption, I mean, think about the things you hate. Whether it's racism, whether it's adultery, whether it's murder, whether it's terrorism, are always matters of the heart before they're issues of behavior. Always. And we're all guilty, we're all defiled, to use Jesus' word. And yet the promise here in Isaiah 55 is that there is no pit, no pit of sin. No cycle of sin, no history of personal sin that is so deep that God's mercy is not deeper still. It's abundant. It's unending. It's infinite. So God's extravagant pardon is rooted in his mercy and it's necessitated by our sin. Now third, I want you to see that it's secured by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So God's mercy is abundant, our sin is abundant, and Jesus' work on the cross is abundant. Now look at verse five. In verse five, we are told God is a holy God, the Holy One of Israel. But then in verse seven, where we've been, we are told that God is merciful. We are promised that he will have uh, mercy. Now let's tease those out, holiness and mercy. Because God is holy, he must judge sin. Just as a judge facing a criminal who has been found guilty must act, must judge that crime or whatever it is. Uh, You see, leniency towards the wicked is cruelty towards the just. So God must judge sin. God is holy, but on the other hand, God is love. He's full of mercy, full of compassion, full of kindness. And God doesn't want, God wants, I should say it this way, God wants to forgive sin. So what did God do? This is the divine dilemma. God is holy, God is merciful. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. To die on the cross in our place for our sins so that justice might be satisfied and mercy triumphant. And they meet and they are reconciled as Jesus died for us. Now Jesus is not a little savior who offers a little sacrifice. Uh, Jesus is fully God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who created each and every one of us, 
who knows every single hair on our head, who is in complete and absolute control of every atom in the universe. And he freely, he voluntarily gave himself so that we might find eternal life. Be pardoned. Now let me press pause and make a cultural, com cultural comment. This sounds crazy today. Christianity just sounds crazy. Because in the West today, we are totally skeptical about ultimate beliefs. We think it's impossible to know ultimate truth. Yet there's a terrible inconsistency in this. Because no belief, think about this, no belief can be doubted except on the basis of another belief. The rejection of religion is another form of religion. And to hold that with certainty, as it's often done today, is ultimate hypocrisy. You can't know, you can't be certain about your religion, but I can be certain about my irreligion. And irreligion is just another form of irreligion, or religion. But what's worse, and this is my point, is that today, there is no forgiveness anywhere in the universe. And the human need for forgiveness is a cruel joke. There is no, there is no anywhere, any religion, forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ. And so God gave his son. Now let, this brings me to my final point. And it's this question, well, how do we receive this forgiveness? But to get at that question, I want to state it, uh, my fourth point as a, statement and what I want you to understand is according to the text of Isaiah according to the entire teaching of the Bible this abundant forgiveness is free for the taking it's abundantly unconditional and by that I mean you don't earn it you don't merit it you don't pray your way to it you don't deserve it let's go back and read the first two verses these beautiful verses of invitation Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then it shifts. The mood shifts in verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare, the richest of food, the richest of meals. Now there are two things here, one in each verse. The one point in verse 1 is obvious. The point in verse 2 is less obvious. And we have to dig to get there. Verse 1. We tend to think, I mentioned this a minute ago, that we have to have it together to approach God. Uh, our, 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 our view is either we're too guilty or God is too demanding. So over the course of our lives, we tend to put that off. I mean, we want to have our fun. Uh, I don't measure up, and um, man, uh, if God really, um, 
knew me, um, it would really be bad. So we kind of think we can hide. Sort of like a two-year-old hiding from her, her mom. But in verse one, what do we read? Well, in verse one, we read come. And come is found four times. Who? All you who are thirsty, all you who have no money, that's a metaphor for you understand your spiritual poverty. You understand that in your heart there are things going on that are not good. You see your greed, you see your lust, you see your envy, your anger, whatever it is. Your tendency to shade the truth. And so you have no money before God and you know it. You're thirsty and you know you need God. And so who is this invitation for? It's for all of us. It's for everyone, regardless of what we've done, regardless of how many times we've done it. And God invites us, not because we're good or not because we're getting it together, but because he is gracious, like a mother embracing a defiant four-year-old. I love you, I love you. And so the condition, according to verse 1, for coming to Christ is that there is absolutely no condition. It's free for the taking. There's no amount of confession, no amount of good works, no amount of prayer. The invitation is free. And it's available to all who thirst. You want something more, something better. Something permanent. Now we come to verse 2. Verse 2 is a different story. Because here God in verse 2 shifts and he addresses what in the world it is that keeps us from coming. And uh, a few days ago as I'm looking at this, all of a sudden the Spirit turned some lights on on my head. And I realize that based on verse 2, what keeps us from coming to God is our own personal vision of the good life. And apart from God, apart from Jesus, we're always looking for life in the wrong places. And what do we do? Well, we define the good life horizontally. But what Isaiah is telling us, we will only be fulfilled if we define the good life vertically in terms of who God is. So let me illustrate it this way. We all have certain things going on in our heads that nobody knows about, things going on in our hearts. And so, for example, uh, some of us think if only I was married, or if only I had a better job, or only if I had more money, if only I looked like her, if only I played better, if only, if only, if only. Whatever is on the other side of your if onlys is your vision of the good life. And often, it's an unconscious thing. But I want to tell you, it drives everything in your life because you are what you want. But verse 2, God says, apart from Christ, that's spending your money on what is not bread. It's laboring, spending your entire life 
on what does not ultimately satisfy. And it will leave you stressed, it will leave you hollow, it will leave you addicted, it will leave you in debt. Creation, anything in creation, as beautiful as creation is, never satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. God didn't wire us that way. He wired us that that satisfaction will be found in him. It will be vertical. Creation was never designed to be your savior. Jesus came to be your savior, to fill the hollowness and the emptiness, to give you joy and purpose. And the metaphor here is to eat what is good. That's pointing to Jesus. To delight in the, to delight in the richest of meals, the banquet. A metaphor for abundant life. And it's all found in what God, from the standpoint of Isaiah, was about to do in seven centuries in Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus on every page in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And if there's one thing I want for you as your pastor is I want you to know this from the inside out. I want you to know what Lon Allison knows in the face of very difficult cancer. And so the question is, and I'm done, what are we to do? And the answer is found in verse 7. We repent and we believe. Two sides of the same coin. We turn uh, from, we turn away, we forsake is the word in verse 7, and, and we turn to God in, in Jesus Christ. So we repent and believe. Now let me talk about this concept of belief. What is belief? Well, if you go back to verse 2, it's described in metaphors. It's listen, listen. To listen to God is to believe. To eat is to fellowship with God. To delight, it means you're all in. Now, let me, I've used this analogy before, but here we have a chair. And most of us believe that God exists, not all of us, but most of us believe that God exists, that Jesus existed in the same way we believe this chair exists. But the biblical concept of belief is different than believing about. The biblical concept of belief is trust. It's moving from I know Jesus existed to I'm trusting Jesus to save me from my sins. I'm taking that pardon. I'm sitting in the chair. I'm trusting Jesus for my eternal destiny. So Isaiah says, listen, eat, and, and delight. And the reason we say it's unconditional, because it's not a performance thing, it's something that takes place in your heart. You know, when, when a king forgives the rebels in his kingdom, that's pardon. But when he not only forgives them, but he adopts them into his family and makes them sons and daughters and invites them into his banquet hall 
and reveals himself to them and does life with them and answers their prayers and, and teaches them and, and instructs them and, and gives them life, what God has done in, in the Bible, all because he put his one and only favorite son to death for their treason, that isn't just mercy, that is abundant mercy abundant pardon, and that's precisely what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. If you are here today, come to Jesus. Let's pray. If God is speaking to you, I want to invite you in the quietness of this moment in your heart to say, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. And I come. I'm going to sit in a chair. I'm going to trust you to be my Savior. I'm going to stop merely believing about you. I'm going to trust in you. And the promise of Isaiah is that you will be abundantly pardoned. Thank you, God. Amen.